In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days and the years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord.
And let's pray. In 2 Corinthians we read, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Father, all we have is Christ. Jesus is our life. And so we ask that we would see him in the scriptures, that you would say, let light shine. And that in the scriptures, in what you've made, in the Lord Jesus, we would see your glory. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, if we haven't met, my name is uh, Richard, uh, one of the ministers here. It's very good to uh, have you with us uh, or uh, joining us online. And uh, we're going to be back uh, in that chapter of Genesis. We looked at it last week. We'll look at it again uh, next week. There's plenty uh, to see there. And as we start this morning, uh, I wonder if you could have three words to describe what the world is like. What would be the three words that first come to mind for you? Maybe thinking of your experience of the last week, what you're anticipating for next week. What three words would come to mind for you to describe what the world is like? If you had the time, I'd love to uh, sort of get out a flip chart and sort of uh, take a tally and see what words come up. Do we sort of broadly agree? Do we disagree as what we think the world is like? Are we more positive? Are we more negative? It'd be fun to, uh, to see what words come to mind as we think about the world. What we are going to do this morning is hear what uh, God says about uh, the world that we live in. Uh, if you were here last week, you'd have seen uh, this picture that Tim uh, made for us, uh, the, our, our worldview picture. Uh, the three questions uh, that make up uh, what we think about the world, that sort of jigsaw puzzle of what we think is going on, how the pieces fit together. Uh, The question we thought about last week, who is God? Uh, Who am I? We'll think about next week. Today, what is the world? This world that we live in, what is it like? And that's a question that we need to uh, have an answer to, to know how to make sense of the world that we live in. If you knew that this week you were going to be uh, living uh, underwater uh, or on the International Space Station or somewhere very hot, uh, you'd sort of, you'd pack accordingly, you'd prepare accordingly. And we need to know for this week, what sort of world are we going into so we can prepare well, so we can live well in the world that we find ourselves in. And so these uh, questions, who is God? What's the world like? Who am I? Uh, They're questions that will help us at the start of a new year to reorient ourselves, uh, to live well in the world uh, that God has made for us. Uh, And in a word, I gave you uh, three words. In a word, what would God say about the world that he made? He'd say it was good. Uh, We uh, heard that from Sarah. I hope you heard it as uh, Genesis 1 was read for us. This world, God said, it is good. Repeated seven times through the chapter, it is good. On every day apart from the second, God's not a fan of Mondays, uh, but on every other day, God says, it is good, this world that he's made. And we're going to think about what is it uh, that uh, means God thinks this world is good. Now, uh, two little uh, comments by way of introduction before we jump into it. Uh, The first is to say, and again, you might have seen uh, the the slide that we've got for this whole series. Uh, It might come up on the screen again. Uh, We've called this series Making Sense of the World, but uh, with that heading uh, Foundations and Fractures. And in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, we're seeing some of the foundations that God put into the world, the building blocks that he uh, joins together to make the world what it is. And then in Genesis 3 in particular, we'll start to see the the fractures, the breaking and the cracking as things start to fall apart. And so the world that God said is good 
it is the world that we still live in, but broken, starting to crack and creak and strain. And so the things we'll see in Genesis 1, they were true when God made the world. They will be true when God remakes the world. And today, they're true, but strained, cracked, fractured. And we'll see more how that works over the next few weeks. But that's just one sort of point to have in mind as we look at this chapter. Uh, The second is, uh, the question of what does this chapter teach us about what the world is like, for some of us, our instinctive answer will be, surely it tells us nothing about what the world is like. This text, written thousands of years ago, think of the scientific advances and discoveries we've made in the centuries since. How can an ancient text possibly tell us anything that the scientists haven't already? In fact, as we look through it, there'll be parts of it that we look at and think, that just seems wrong. That doesn't seem to describe how the world actually is or works. Is this text not just outdated, but wrong? We're not going to say a lot about that now. If that is something you'd like to explore more, then this evening there's a chance to do that. Our our evening extra this evening, uh, we're thinking about faith and science. And we've got a a panel of a few scientists who are part of the congregation here at Platt. And uh, they're going to be sharing how their uh, scientific work and their Christian faith, how they see those things relating. There'll be a chance to ask them questions as well if you want to. So a chance to think more about that this evening. Uh, For now, let me just say one thing, which is there there are different ways to answer questions. So say you came over to uh, my house at some point during this week, and uh, you walked in and you saw the, the kettle was boiling. And you asked me the question, why is the kettle boiling? Now, I could give an answer about uh, electrical currents and uh, heating elements and kinetic energy and molecules vibrating and evaporation, and all of that would be true and would answer the question, why is the kettle boiling? Or I could say, I thought you might like a cup of tea. And that would be true and would explain why the kettle was boiling. Quite different answers, but both of them true. And now, when it comes to Genesis 1, it seems to me that God isn't particularly interested here in heating elements and kinetic energy, not so much the, the mechanics and the nuts and bolts. It's almost like he's left that as an exercise for us. And our scientists have made astonishing discoveries and insights into how the world works and how the pieces fit together. But here in Genesis 1, God is answering a, the question in a different way. If you came to my house and the kettle was boiling, I might be making a cup of tea. Uh, I might be about to um, try and use it to unblock the sink. You don't know why I've boiled the kettle unless you ask me. In Genesis 1, God is going to tell us something we can only find out by asking him. God, why did you make the world? What's it for? What, What sort of world is it? And how do we live well in it? That's enough by way of preamble. Uh, Let's look at uh, Genesis 1 in these six uh, days and see what God says about the world and what it's like and what it's for. And as Sarah showed us earlier, they come in pairs. Uh, So days 1, 2, 3, God makes three habitats. Days 4, 5, 6, God makes the corresponding things that live in each of them. And so we'll take the days in pairs, three pairs, and for each of the three we'll learn one thing about what the world is like. And so days uh, 1 and 4, we see the world... Creation is extravagant. It's extravagant. Uh, God says, this is uh, day four, verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. 
Let them be light in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. God makes the, the sun and the moon and the stars for us. Do you see, to, to serve as signs, to mark times and days and years. As Tim put it last week, if you were here, uh, God made clocks in the sky. We need a clock. We need a calendar. We need to know when it's day and night. We need to know when the, the seasons are coming. Uh, we need to know what year it is. We need to know when it's Christmas. And so we have these clocks and calendars in the sky. That's their purpose. What astonishing clocks they are. Uh, over Christmas, we were given this book. Our kids are enjoying planets at the moment, so we were given this uh, book about space, uh, a children's book about the solar system. And uh, so I was uh, on the sofa with our kids uh, reading about the sun. There it is. Uh, not actual size, but um, uh, the sun. And I was reading, the sun is incredibly hot. The temperature of the outer layer is 5,000 degrees Celsius. And I sort of thought, that is pretty hot, 5,000 degrees. Then I went on, that's just the outer layer. The core is 15 million degrees Celsius. 15 million degrees at the middle of the sun. Now, it would take you a long time to get there. You'd have time to acclimatize because um, uh, the sun itself is a million, you could fit a million Earths into the sun if you were so disposed and had some spare ones. Uh, a million Earths you could fit into the sun, 15 million degrees in the middle of it. God looked at humanity and said, they'll need a clock. I know what I'll do. I'll make it 15 million degrees. It's an extravagance, far more than we need, that God gives to us. And then the stars. He also made the stars. I would like to imagine that on day three, preparing for this, towards the end of the working day, God called the angel Gabriel into his office and said, Gabe, how many stars do you think I should do? How many stars? And Gabriel sort of thinks, well, they're quite useful stars. They use them for navigation. Uh, they're quite pretty to look at. They'll sort of you know, mark out different seasons as they move across the skies. Uh, do a couple of hundred stars, that should be enough. That'll be enough to functionally, that'll work. And God says, yeah. I was thinking I might do 100 billion galaxies and put 100 billion stars in each one. There's an extravagance, an exuberance to God's creation. What he's given us functions very well, but it does far more than function. It's extravagant in its generosity. Creation is extravagant. Uh, secondly, creation is tamed. We learn on days uh, two and five. And particularly as we look at the sea, creation is tamed. Now, in uh, uh, the, the world of the day, uh, the sea was a, a picture and a reality of threat and chaos and fear. And you can understand why in uh, an ancient culture. Uh, for us, with our best submarines, we still can't make it to the bottom of the sea. It's too deep, too hard to get to the bottom. We haven't mapped out the bottoms fully yet. But in the ancient world, no idea really how far the sea goes or how far down it goes. And it's so unpredictable. One day you're sort of uh, looking at this beautiful view as the sun sets over the blue water. And the next day, this terrifying storm that's been whipped up on the waves, these crashing waves. And as you walk along the beach, the tide sort of uh, uh, drifts in a jellyfish. And you look at this thing that's just been sort of washed out of the sea and think, that is weird. And I have no idea what else is in there that might be even weirder. This sort of unknown, mysterious, fearful thing. But not for the Lord. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault 
sky. Uh, the, the image here is sort of imagine a giant tarpaulin stretched across the earth, and God takes some of the water from the seas, that scary, turbulent, fearful, chaotic water, and says some of that is going up here on top of the tarpaulin. It's going to stay in place because that tarpaulin is going to hold it, and that'll be the useful water. That'll be rain for people, for crops, uh, water for animals. And uh, God can do that. He can take this water and separate the scary water and the useful water and hold it in place. It goes where it's told. Then when we get to day five, God starts filling this habitat that he's made. Let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living creature with which the water teems and that moves about in it. These great creatures of the sea. Again, in the imagination of the day, down in the depths of the sea, who knows what's down there, there were these great sea monsters. And they didn't just mind their own business. In, in, in the imagination of the day, they had their influence on what happens on the land. They were agents of chaos and destruction, and you could blame them for all kinds of things that happened. But Genesis tells us God made them. God made them. At one commentator on Genesis, I enjoyed this, said, uh, it's telling us that the great monsters are rubber ducks in the Lord's bathtub. He made them. He's not afraid of them. If Genesis were written in 2022, I'm sure that Moses would have gone out of his way to say, God made coronaviruses. That thing which for us, like the sea for them, is, a, is uncontrollable and dangerous, and harmful. Not for the Lord. He made it. He has it on a lead. It comes when he whistles. Creation is extravagant. Creation is tamed. And thirdly, creation produces life. Creation produces life. Come with me to at day three. Then God said... Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. That's on day three. And day six is very similar but with the animals. The, the land produces these animals in their astonishing array of kinds and types and varieties. I did a little bit of uh, looking this week and... Uh, there are 41 species of cat, uh, apparently, but then the numbers go up. Apples, there are 7,500 types of apple in the world. Grass, there are 12,000 species of grass. Uh, who knew? I don't know how many you have on your lawn, but uh, there are 12,000 to choose from. Uh, scientists have so far recorded, they think there are more than this, but so far scientists have recorded 49,623 species of spider, which... You might be one of those people who thinks that's 49,000 more than we need. But uh, the Lord loves life. And the variety that he created is astonishing. And not just a variety, but a, a life that reproduces life. At the simplest, the smallest animals, they have no idea how the biology works, but you get a boy mouse and a girl mice, you've got more mice. They can, they can reproduce. They've got no idea what they're doing. And then plants have seeds. And that's emphasized through day three, these seeds of these plants. And again, the, the wonder and the marvel that this tiny seed 
can produce a tree. God loves life, and he's created a world that produces life after life after life. And I wonder if for many of us, day three is where we feel the, the fractures, the brokenness of this world the most. Because we experience life as heading towards death. And of course that's true of any individual life. The, the miracle of a new life created but we know it's heading towards eventually death. But think for a moment about Jesus. As Jesus came into the world, and around him there was a bubble where creation worked like it was meant to. Around him there was a bubble where illness was driven away, where death was driven away, where there was health, where there was life, where there was abundance. And then Jesus himself killed on a cross and his body buried like a seed in the ground, buried, until day three, the day of life, the day his body, that seed, blossomed and budded and flowered, and he walked from the grave into a new life, a more vibrant life, a more alive kind of life than anything in creation had experienced till that moment. And in his resurrection, the guarantee that the universe itself will have its third day that that day will come when at his command everything that's been buried in the dust of the earth will bud and blossom and flower and grow and rise to a kind of life, a vibrancy of life, an explosion of new life that we can't begin to imagine today because the Lord loves life. And he made a creation that is heading towards life. God looked at the world he'd made and he saw that it was good. For at least these three reasons, because it's extravagant, because it's tamed, because it produces life. The Lord looked at it and said, that is good. And then he gave it to us. And we'll think about that more next week, uh, where we fit into this chapter and this story and this world. We'll think about that more next week. Uh, But just briefly now, three responses to this good world that God has made and given to us. Three ways I think we can uh, respond to that. The first is to care for the world we've been given. You know what it is, some... Uh, At Christmas time, some presents you're given are very functional. We were given a tin opener, a pair of socks, you know, whatever it might be. I think this is useful, but um, it's just going in the drawer. Some presents are beautiful. You know, thought has gone into them. Care, maybe in their construction, if someone's made something for you. And those things we are careful with. They might be something to be used, but we use them carefully. We treat them carefully. And so it is with the world that God has given to us. We hear lots at the moment in our culture about uh, care for the world and for our climate, and, and rightly so. It's an astonishing gift that's been given to us by the Lord, something so beautiful and intricate and extravagant and tamed and productive. To, to want to care for it is an entirely right instinct. We care for this world. Secondly, God's given it to us to enjoy, to enjoy uh, there have been uh, various studies over the last 10 years or so that uh, suggest very strongly that living in cities 
and being indoors and particularly being online can in all kinds of ways uh, be harmful for us, physically, psychologically, sort of uh, ways that it changes us and uh, not for the better. And one of the best antidotes these studies are finding is getting outside and enjoying the creation that God's given us, allowing it to uh, reset us, reframe us, reshape us. Uh, The American poet Wendell Berry, uh, he wrote this. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, which do not tax their lives with forethought or grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. That phrase, the grace of the world, is all over Genesis 1, the, the gift, the givenness of the world as a gift to us, for us to enjoy and rest and find freedom. And so if you're able at the weekend to get out and explore the peaks, if you're able in a lunch break, if you're working from home, to get out for 20 minutes to your closest park, if you're able of an evening to put David Attenborough on the TV and enjoy the world that God has given to us and find it resetting us and reframing us, recalibrating us and leading us to worship. That's the third thing. We care for this world we've been given. We enjoy it. And we worship not the world, but the Lord who made it. And we have this panel of scientists this evening. The, the question I'm most looking forward to asking them is, how has your work, your, your scientific work, led you to worship the Lord more deeply? And I'm excited about that because I've, I've asked them the question. I've heard sort of previews of their answers. And it's, it's astonishing and awe-inspiring the things that their scientific investigation has led them to understand about the world, see in the world, the beauty and the intricacy and the design of it. And even for those of us who have not a scientific bone in our bodies, we can still go into the garden and take a flower and look at the petals on it. We can still watch the sunrise come up in the morning or the sunset in the evening, if that's more your end of the day. We can still watch David Attenborough on the telly. And we can marvel at what the Lord has made and turn that to worship of him as our creator.